Welcome to Not in a Huff with Jackson Huff, where we interview newsmakers, storytellers, and all-around interesting people. Sit back, relax, uh, unless you're driving, and enjoy the show. Here's Jackson. Hello, hello, hello. I am Jackson Huff. This is Not in a Huff. Appreciate you being here this week. I've got a, a very special episode this week. Uh, one that's quite different than we normally do. Normally, every week, we talk to someone about their life, tell us about their experiences, what made them who they are, sometimes talk about interesting professions. That's, that's kind of what uh, what this podcast is all about. But this week, special episode, I'm interviewing Sherman Talowski, and uh, he, rather than tell us about himself, which he's going to do, which he has quite the uh, quite the... The resume, if you will, just in, in doing a lot of really awesome things, and, and he's still pretty young, so a lot, a lot to, uh, a lot to still see, and, and a lot that I'm sure we're going to see him do. Um, but he has a podcast where he talks a lot about history, mostly American history, and, and how we kind of became who we are, and uh, and got to this exact moment that we're at. Now I know not all of the listeners are from the United States, the bulk are, but not everyone. But I think you'll, everyone will enjoy this because what he's going to do this week is give us the backstory and the history behind three different people within America's history. You know, we, we always talk to people about their lives. Well, he's going to tell us about some, uh, some people's lives that shaped kind of who America is. So whether it's to listen to see how you as an American was shaped within this country or whether you're not from uh, the United States and you just wanted to see exactly how America was shaped or just how some really interesting people did some some really important impactful things. I uh, I didn't really do a ton of talking this week. Um, that maybe some people are like, yes, finally, or some people are like, yeah, well, that's going to be interesting, but it was a a, a different conversation where I, I kind of let him can I take over? I asked a, a few questions in the middle, but uh, it was kind of him presenting the uh, the history of America in a very uh, very tough time, and that was mostly during the Civil War. He he tied in the uh, farewell speech of George Washington and and how those uh, pillars kind of created a uh, kind of a foundation of of who America is and. Uh, and he kind of tied that into how these people um, work towards, you know, making America better. But uh, yeah, it, it was a, a really cool conversation. It was a really cool presentation by him, learning some very interesting things. You know, these these are going to include everything from uh, people getting beaten on the Senate floor, and that's back in the 1800s, to um, Debates with with Abraham Lincoln to all kinds of stuff. It, it was it was a really impactful, interesting conversation. I really appreciate him being here. A lot to learn this week. It really is going to be a, a learning learning lesson, if you will. And the cool thing was all of these people that we're going to talk about. All three of them. Most people probably have never even heard of. You know, it's easy to have a conversation about George Washington and Abraham Lincoln and, you know, Barack Obama and Franklin Roosevelt and all those people. But uh, 
we're going to talk about people who you're very well maybe like who and then you're going to hear exactly what they did and you're going to think wow i don't know who they are but uh i'm glad uh, i'm glad they were there for sure so without further ado a lot to cover this week here is my conversation with sherman talowski i am here today with sherman talowski sherman how are you i'm doing great jackson thank you so much for having me today Oh, well, thanks for joining me. I appreciate it for sure. So, you know, this is going to be a, a very different podcast. We we already kind of talked about it before we started recording, but it's going to be more of a kind of a history lesson where you tell us just a little bit about, you know, one of our founding fathers and then some some Civil War generals. So I'm excited about that just because I, I like uh, I like learning about history, definitely some of the, the, the great parts, but the not so great parts. So they don't... Uh, they don't repeat themselves, so to speak. So before we get into that, though, I do want to hear a little bit about, about you. So kind of in your own words, just a, a brief summary of uh, Sherman Talowski. Absolutely. Well, I'm from the California Bay Area originally, grew up in the San Francisco area, but I'm currently living most of my time in the wine country. It's about an hour north of the city. In growing up, I grew up in a, a family where on my dad's side were of Eastern European descent. And on my mother's side, uh, my mother is from Taiwan, an immigrant from Taiwan who moved in the 1980s. So growing up, I was in an American family, but one that was built on you know, the East and the West. And that really influenced a lot of what I do today. One of the things that I like to discuss about is about U.S.-China relations when I'm talking about kind of what I do or what I studied before in school. And uh, the reason why U.S.-China relations is so important, obviously, is because of partly because of my Taiwan background. So growing up, I was exposed to a number of different cultures, but very uniquely American, I would say. And when I was younger, I got my first newspaper subscription in high school. And from then on, I just got, got more curious about current events. I was curious about how the world worked, why the United States is so important in the world as a world power. But that really coincided with my early interest in American history. I was very drawn to the American Revolution because it wasn't just a history lesson for me. It was really stories about ideas and about values and values that we try to reach for. You know, we always think of you know more perfect union in the Constitution. That's exactly the kinds of spirit that the kind of values that I want to embody within myself. And when I went to college, I went to King's College London in the UK, and I studied political science and focused more on European politics and transatlantic relations. And it was really an ability to understand the United States from the outside in rather than just from the inside out, because obviously every country has certain biases. And while it's not one of those things where you have to agree with every single person you meet, but it's about understanding why people think in a particular way, especially about the United States and you know, meeting people who've never even been to the States. That's always kind of a fun thing to do because you know, you're not coming from a Hollywood set for them. You're an actual person from America. And so I just really, really loved my experience there. In 2018, I graduated uh, with my bachelor's from King's and then I came back to the United States. And I really wanted to focus and hone in on something uh, in international affairs. And I decided to go to Texas A&M in College Station, Texas. And I went to the Bush School of Government and Public Service, named after President Bush Sr. Uh, he uh, actually wanted to create a school for future public servants. And that's what I really wanted to do. I wanted to enter public service as a career. And I knew that I had to 
get myself ready for those big issues like US China or intelligence or homing security. Uh, but my interest in history just never vanished. It, it just kept going on. So throughout this time, even though my schools didn't really teach a lot of American history, which is very much a shame for myself. I went to private schools, uh, but I went to go to King's, a public university as well. And I really felt like I needed to do something about this. I wanted to share people American history and civics, but in a different manner and one that fits very much the mold of how the United States was created. And so after graduating my master's last year uh, in international relations from the Bush School, I started my first podcast called Friends and Fellow Citizens, which is named after the first words of Washington's farewell address. And ever since August 2020, I've had episodes every week. And to this day, I still continue to do podcasts about current events, about major issues that are facing our nation, and a little bit of some American history delving into, which is what we're going to get into today. So I'm very, very excited and I can't wait to jump right into it. I mean, there's a, there's a lot there. So not necessarily bipartisanship, we're going to talk about that, but just being civil with, with each other. I think that's really important in, in the, the political environment we live in and kind of going back to uh, you know, our, our founding. Um, so tell to us a little bit about uh, George Washington and his uh, farewell address. Absolutely. Well, I'll preface with something here about Washington and the farewell address. And the reason why I'm focusing on this particular document, you know, in traditional American civics, we do focus on the Declaration and the Constitution. These are very important documents, don't get me wrong. But the farewell address is very unique because it was written by the first president of the United States, obviously. And it was an address to the citizens back then, but really for future generations in America. And it was more of a, I think, a reflection of the lessons that Washington learned, because there might be a perception that Washington was this really popular guy and everyone loved him and unanimous support. It, it, it was just not the case at all <laughs> with Washington. He was popular, but there were a number, number of different problems and issues and opponents. One of the things I learned back you know, when I was younger was something called the Conway Cabal, which was one of the first big plots to overthrow Washington as the commander in chief of the Continental Army, if you can believe that. <laughs> um, but that really wasn't that big of a factor coming into the 1790s. Really what Washington was dealing with was domestic challenges, but also foreign challenges too, with the French and the British at the time. And I've focused on Washington's farewell address also because it was a call for uh, people to remember how dangerous factionalism it is. Factionalism being that various different sects or various different groups within society basically just going after it, going after each other. And this was something that was going to be a very, very difficult issue to deal with just because with everything that happened in the American Revolution, there needed to be some kind of stability and some kind of way to have a civil society. You know, I always say that the American Revolution wasn't created so we could have more chaos. That doesn't make any sense at all. American Revolution was created and happened because we needed a better system of government to reflect the will of the American people. And those three words, we the people, at the beginning of the Constitution, really symbolizes a lot of, not just the ideals that we have to pursue, but also a lot of the work that needs to be done in order to achieve that goal of serving for the interests of the American people. 
And in my podcast, I've kind of developed into six pillars, and I like to make these kind of the theme here. I'll just briefly introduce them, and these are the themes that are present within Washington's Farewell Address, which is read every year by the U.S. Senate. They rotate parties. It's a really, really cool tradition uh, that they do every single Washington's birthday in February. The first pillar I like to focus on is patriotism. Obviously, patriotism is that that connection to the fatherland, uh, patria, uh, coming from Latin, and this ideal is is very much articulated in Washington's farewell address because clearly, to be able to serve the interests of America, you need to love this nation. You need to be able to care about the people you serve. Uh, but the second is on uh, faith. Washington really believed that you need to have some kind of religious and moral grounding for any kind of society, because that's how you determine what's right and wrong. You know, why there's the famous question, why is murder bad? Why is it illegal? Why can people face, you know, life in prison or uh, even the death penalty for, for murder? And that's because there is some kind of religious moral grounding to it where uh, murder is a complete infringement on someone's right to live and someone's right to be able to live a life and to enjoy the freedoms that are espoused in the rest of uh, in the rest of society, and so that's why Washington really emphasized that too is that we still need to retain that religious and moral compass to guide us even in those very very difficult challenges. Uh, the third is on uh, national unity. So you know, really looking at ways to keep this country together. Because obviously, after the American Revolution, there was a real question, are we going to be one nation? Or are we going to be 13 different countries? Because every single colony was like, oh, I want to do this, I want to do that. There had to be some kind of federal government in place to say, no, this is what the national interest is. This is what Washington, D.C. gets to do. And for the other things that are not in the Constitution, or things that things should be for the states, then those will be left to the states. And so this idea of national unity was something very early on and to this day is always something we're striving to achieve. And Washington really called for this, especially given the fact that there were also other foreign powers like Britain and France trying to intervene. Um, So this was a really, really important uh, pillar to also achieve. Uh, The fourth is on education. So having you know, a, po- a population that under- was able to understand what the issues were happening, because that allows the people to be able to connect with the representatives and for the representatives to connect with the people. So having a sense of, of education for people to be able to learn uh, and to develop new skills and trade, um, it's also a very big part of the economy, clearly, uh, to be able to have education in place. Uh, Another one is fiscal responsibility, you know, not being able to uh, spend is uh, spend a whole lot of money is something that is yes, a bit of an obstacle, but it's also a bit of a virtue for the federal government too, because fiscal responsibility is being able to recognize what the priorities of the government are and what the private sector should be doing, Um, understanding what taxes do and uh, how to have these civil debates about what the economy should look like and the kinds of economic policies that should be put out. And the last thing I want is obviously a big one here, it's civility. And uh, Washington definitely espoused this too. He especially criticizes the political parties because he saw right in his administration, he saw the Hamiltonians, the Federalists, 
have at one end of the spectrum. Then you've got Jefferson and his Jeffersonian, you know, Democratic Republicans basically at war with each other. And he saw that firsthand. And I truly believe that in his heart, he really was concerned about what this would do to define American politics. And so all the six of these pillars really come into play. And you know, today's conversation, I would love to just explore some of these pillars and how some of these individuals I'll be introducing later today, uh, how they fit into this fabric of American politics as we know it. For those who don't know, and, and I'm, I kind of include myself here on, on all the details, but the I guess the importance of Washington's farewell address, not just, you know, in what he, he spoke about, but, but just kind of the importance that it laid out of the transition of power and, you know, moving on and not just basically becoming a, a king, which I hear is, was really important to him. Mm-hmm. Um, so what was the, what was the climate like? You, are, you, are, you already mentioned how every, everyone, even, even the, the most loved person is going to have their haters and I, I, it's no surprise that Washington did too. But what was the climate like for when he uh, he did leave? Was it something that he probably could have made a you know a lifetime out of, or was were, were people tiring of uh, his leadership? Sure. Well, that's a great question. I would say that while it's difficult to estimate what exactly the climate was like, I can tell you that his perspective, he thought it was getting worse to some degree. Now, that's not to say that he didn't think he tried his best because he actually did acknowledge that. He said, I try my best, but he also acknowledged something called the fallible judgment of himself, which was that he was saying he had the best intentions, but he knew that he made mistakes. And he knew that those mistakes obviously had to be fixed by somebody else. And whether or not you know people were tired of him, obviously some, it depends on who you ask. Uh, some people obviously were tired, and obviously accused of Washington of being a tyrant, which is I think too far. <laughs> but there were people who felt that way, and he also also felt that he because he was already a two term president, he also wanted to set the precedent, and that's why that two term precedent lasted all the way to FDR, is because he believed that if we're going to have a constitution that is able to hold the executive branch accountable, that executive branch needs to hold itself accountable with some kind of precedent. And that's why he believed that he knew that he couldn't serve forever. And also because Mount Vernon was probably a lot more pleasant for him than Philadelphia. And he said, in his perspective, you know, it's good to be home, you know, home is uh, where the heart is, I guess, for him. And he was a Virginia guy. So he definitely wanted to go back home too. Uh, but the, the the state of the country was certainly very much in disarray in many areas because the French Revolution was still kind of happening at that time. The British were still basically capturing American ships or the Barbary pirates. So there were a lot of issues that had to be resolved. But he believed that this was a time for him to leave office and to basically outline saying, here are the things I learned here are the things that we need to keep in mind. Uh, but he also believed that for change, there has to be mechanism. There has to be a civil mechanism to be able to change these things. And that's why we have constitutional amendments, um, basically allowing the American people to change the constitution when there is an appetite, a big enough appetite, an overwhelming appetite to make positive change. Speak a little bit about, you You talked a lot about these these people you know, obviously being people that we 
we read about and we've kind of put on this pedestal and and don't even necessarily seem like real people and maybe characters at this point. Um, but they did have a lot of negatives and, and I kind of want to want to address a little bit of that. I mean, obviously the time was very different, but that doesn't say that the actions are necessarily right. Um, so to someone who's listening to this and saying, you know, why are we taking so such stock in, in what they're saying when, you know, they, they did some very bad things like obviously being slave owners and things like that. Absolutely. Well, I'll use Benjamin Franklin as an example because he made a remark about the Constitutional Convention. Uh, he knew that there were quite a few people from all across the colonies at the time with all their different interests, their different backgrounds. And to paraphrase him, he basically was saying, we're all walking in here with our rights and wrongs. We all have flaws. We all have things that we're going to regret and some things that in the future people are going to change. But it's important to have a good system because when you have a good system or you have a culture of people who work to make that system better, in the long run, you will have good results or better results. And that's why I think the founding is so important because, yes, as you absolutely uh, rightly noted, Jackson, you know, the slave owner issue, uh, the fact that there were people considered slaves as three fifths of a person. I mean, just really, really horrific stuff. But I've always viewed the, uh, the founding fathers as people who set that foundation. But I believe deep down, many of them, if not all of them, believe that you know, in 300 years, there's going to be people who are going to think very differently in terms of the issues that they're debating. Because obviously, they didn't get the slavery debate right. There were a number of things that didn't go right. But we have to, I think, have this ideal perhaps in, in this nation of saying, look, we've had a very checkered past. There are a lot of things that are very uncomfortable reading about. Uh, even as myself, I mentioned that I'm uh, half Taiwanese. It's not the most comfortable feeling reading about the Chinese Exclusion Act, for example. But you read about it and you know you have confidence and you have faith that America is, is one of those countries that recognizes its wrongs and and is able to address those and is able to be an even better country. Our, our country at the time was a work in progress and really we're, we're still a, a work in progress and we're kind of built on, right. on an ideal. So I, I, I like, I like that, uh, that summary there. So tell us just a little bit about how, you know, the, the farewell address and the, the six pillars that you talked about tie into um, a few other people that you're going to speak on. Sure, absolutely. Well, I've got I've narrowed down to three figures, and I've chosen the Civil War, obviously, because that era was such a difficult time for the United States. However, you know, we again, as I like I said, I don't set aside people like Lincoln and others who are very much frequently cited, but in in other parts of history, there's just some people whom I believe representative represented different views of positive values that are overlooked and. That's just the way history is. You know, the history books don't include every single name, even though there's countless people who contributed to a positive cause. Uh, the first person I like to discuss today is William Seward. Now, Seward, he doesn't have the best-sounding last name. I'm not. I'm not going to lie, but 
William Seward is a very unique individual. Seward was governor of New York from 1839 to 42. He was a senator from 1849 to 61. And then he was Lincoln's secretary of state from 1861 to 1869. What makes Seward very unique is that he, number one, was a man well ahead of his time. He was already calling for the abolitionist movement to be central in the United States. He wanted to give more equal opportunities to African-Americans. He actually, personally, as a lawyer, he tried to intervene in cases um, in the South where they were trying to go after Blacks, and he wanted to personally intervene. And even though he was governor of New York, he had nothing to do with the South. Uh, He was governor, and he faced a lot of backlash, as you can imagine, because he was a man so well ahead of his time. Uh, His party, he was affiliated with the Whig party for a while, Uh, But even within that large party, just like in any political party, there's going to be factions. Some are going to be more radical than others. Others are going to be more moderate, depending on the circumstances. And so even within his party, he had some opposition, but he he actually garnered a very big following. Um, Again, we often hear about Lincoln a lot, but Seward was actually a a front runner in the Republican nomination for 1860, uh, the the election uh, where Lincoln was elected in. Uh, Seward got a lot of traction, but it was really because of the fact that he was too far out of his time that actually cost him uh, that nomination. Lincoln was kind of viewed as more of a moderate, as a bit of a compromise between those who were strict abolitionists and those who uh, wanted the kind of economic benefits of abolitionism and those who didn't want to end slavery altogether. Um, So the the Republican Party nominated Lincoln, but uh, although Seward was very devastated, he actually campaigned for Lincoln. Uh, You can imagine, and this is very, very unique, right? Because here's someone who wants to be president of the United States, but he believed that he still needed to fight for the the values that he has espoused in in the past. And when he saw that South Carolina seceded and the other Confederate states seceded, he knew that the country had to rally around someone who had the best potential to unify this country. And that's why he set aside his own political differences with Lincoln and his own ambitions to campaign for Lincoln in 1860. And Lincoln ultimately won by basically a little bit. (laughs) It wasn't by much. He actually, Lincoln only won 39% of the vote, but because of electoral college, he did win the majority of the electoral vote. And what makes Seward also very unique is that you know, as Secretary of State, we don't think about the foreign aspect of, of the Civil War. We often think about you know, North and South. But one thing that is so intriguing about Seward is that he actually was able to work with France and Great Britain, make sure they did not intervene in the Civil War. Because you can might imagine, you might imagine that some foreign powers were interested in supporting the Confederacy just so that they could undermine the United States and be able to take advantage. But Seward was in the middle of all this. He was able to make sure that the Great Britain did not recognize the Confederacy as a country. He made sure that uh, France was also staying out of it a lot of diplomatic negotiations, a lot of work in behind the scenes. But you can imagine going back to Washington's farewell address, Washington very, very strongly emphasized the United States uh, being able to fend off foreign intervention. And I think Seward really did his job here by making sure that the U.S. was going to take care of its own affairs, no matter how ugly it gets. And that's what ultimately happened. Uh, Foreign interference was 
I mean, it may have happened a little bit, but it, it, he was able to uh, to do his job. And that's that's really something very honorable that I, I think he espouses. But one other thing I want to stress, though, from Seward is that he also had good relations with the, the Confederates, which is a very, very odd thing. You would think like he, himself as a staunch abolitionist, as a staunch unionist, how could he ever get along with people? He even got along with Jefferson Davis, you know, the, the president of the Confederacy. Now, I don't think it was... Super duper. It was a really good friendship during the Civil War, but before that, he was able to get even some sympathy from the Confederates in terms of his loss to Lincoln, and that ability for him to work with, uh, try to talk with the Confederates, trying to end the war early. These are also the efforts that I think are are very very important. So that's William Seward. Yeah, and I and I, I'm I'm fascinated by this, just hearing about people that we don't you know, read about a lot. So who's, who's the next person? Absolutely. So let's go into Stephen Douglas. Now, some people obviously know Douglas as the guy who Lincoln debated uh, in the Lincoln Douglas debates, which was very, very publicized. uh, One of the most publicized debates, a series of debates in the history of the United States. And the reason why I bring up Stephen Douglas is Douglas was a senator from Illinois and he was also a representative, so classic Illinois guy, just like Lincoln. And uh, Douglas was the guy who really tried to calm everybody down and say, all right, guys, quiet. I'm trying to work something out. Here's my solution. That was the kind of guy Douglas was. And he very much emphasized this idea of popular sovereignty, which is this notion that the people ultimately should be the ones deciding on the, the big issues, uh, deciding on, for in, in this case, slavery. And this, because this was a recurring problem, you know, we had something like the Missouri Compromise where, you know, it's 3630 a line, you know, there's going to be no slavery up north. But with new states coming in and people with different ideas, that became very, very messy. And when we were trying to expand, westward, you know, with the Mexican-American War, with the new territories, there were all these questions about whether these states would be slave states or free states. And Douglas came in and said, well, I have an idea. Why don't we just let the people of Kansas decide? Why don't we just let the people of California decide? And he was also a very big compromiser because he worked on something called the Compromise of 1850, which it's a kind of a bit of a list here, but basically it was that first, that one of the big pieces of legislation, combination of bills that postponed the American Civil War. And uh, Douglas really wanted to keep fighting on for this, this idea of popular sovereignty. So he was part of this negotiation. He said, well, we got some, we got the Kansas and Nebraska territories. We have no idea what to do with them. So he introduced the Kansas-Nebraska Act, which essentially, like I said, with popular sovereignty, allowed the people of those territories to vote whether they want to be a slave state or a free state. But here's the real thing. Even though it sounds really good, right, with popular sovereignty, but Douglas, I don't think, I think really underestimated how divisive the culture was at that time. Because what happened is that there was something called bleeding Kansas, where people essentially said, oh my gosh, I want to vote in Kansas. So all the uh, abolitionists all went all the way to Kansas. And then all the slave owners were like, all right, I'm going to go to Kansas too. And there's all these people flooding into Kansas and they just started fighting each other. There were uh, there were massacres, there were raids, there were just all kinds of horrible stuff going on in Kansas before the vote. 
And that's why we call it Bleeding Kansas nowadays, because of this gruesome, gruesome fight uh, that happened after the passage of the Kansas-Nebraska Act. And I, I bring up this, this act in particular in, in Douglas because Douglas was a, a reasonable guy. Like I'm sure if you, you were to meet him in Washington, he, he seems like the guy who can get along with a lot of people. He was very, very politically adept. But he was also a representation of where the country was going on the American Civil War because his ideas probably seemed very reasonable in the early 1850s, this idea, oh, people can choose whether to be a slave state or a free state. But as time went on, perhaps he realized first, I don't know if he realized early or later on, but people realized that this isn't going to work. We're, it's just way too divided. It was way too crazy. Um, and even though Douglas was still quite a big, powerful political figure in politics, uh, as part of the Democratic Party, he sought the nomination for the election of 1860. But he was so too unpopular uh, in the party that the Democratic Party at that time actually just basically the guys at the National Convention 1860, they just left. When they saw Douglas with his idea that, oh, you know, you can have slave states and free states depending on what you want, the Southerners are just like, nope, not, I don't want to have anything to do with Stephen Douglas here. And so they nominated John Breckinridge in 1860. And that is the reason, in part, the reason why Lincoln won in 1860 is because the Douglas people, the people who love Stephen Douglas, voted for him. And then all the other staunch, you know, slave owner uh, people voted for Breckinridge. And that split the vote and allowed kind of Lincoln to do a kind of a divide and conquer sort of strategy for 1860. So, and I think Douglas represented something also, uh, something very different too, which kind of relates to Seward in some way, even though Douglas had his own way of doing things, right? This idea of popular sovereignty. But when he saw that the United States was going to be fractured, he decided to fight for the union cause. And I believe it was a very tough decision for him because he knew that politically he was basically done because his party, a lot of his party didn't like him. He basically lost to Lincoln in 1860. He was fourth place, actually, even though he was such a towering figure in politics. But he still wanted to advocate for the union because he knew that not only was he not going to have a political future if the country was fractured, but the United States wouldn't even have its own future. And I think that's why he decided to fight for the union cause. Now, he died very, very soon after the election. Uh, but I believe it's a representation of something very unique about Douglas. Stephen Douglas, not a perfect guy at all. Uh, a lot of things that I would personally criticize, and perhaps a lot of us would. But this idea of putting the union ahead of party is really something that perhaps we can take away from. So what, I mean, what was the outcome in, in Kansas? Well, um, it basically, you know, the law was kind of put in place and everything. However, it, it, they just, uh, both sides just kind of fought out. I, I honestly don't believe that there was kind of like an end result to it because really the legislation was more along lines of like, okay, we're going to have a final vote and everything, but it was just way too hard to determine like, you know, who exactly won because Douglas was actually one of those guys who, uh, basically said that the uh, the Kansas vote um, in later elections, I don't think it was because of this, like this vote for popular sovereignty uh, was actually an unfair election. So it was really kind of a mishmash of different things. Um, I know that history books will definitely say like, like oh, you know, what, then there was one side who was perhaps more dominant in terms of the, um, the, the vote numbers or uh, of the outcome. 
but it's I, I think it's pretty murky in my view, just because uh, the, the 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 situation on the ground was so difficult. It was also very much complicated by the Dred Scott decision in 1857. So just a few years after, because basically the Scott decision essentially nullified the Kansas-Nebraska Act because it said that slavery could exist anywhere. That was kind of the the basic end results because they were saying that Dred Scott, who was a slave, ran away, um, lived in the North for a while. He claimed that he could be a free person because he lived in the North, but the Supreme Court said, no, you you are property. And so therefore that basically nullified the Kansas-Nebraska. So it didn't matter what happened in those territories, but that decision, which obviously infuriated a lot of people in the North, especially obviously the guy, next guy I'll mention later, uh, infuriated a lot of people. And so, you know, it, the, the question is, I guess, you know, uh, where did Nebraska, when did the Nebraska, Kansas Nebraska act die? <laughs> so, I think it died in 1857. Just more the the themes that I'm, I'm, I'm gathering from, from everyone we're talking about is, is just, I guess compromise is a big thing and something that we've, we've been able to do for, for most of our history. And we're, you know, we've had civil wars. So, so obviously there's been times that it didn't go so well, but I, I don't think we're necessarily, maybe we're not getting worse, but I don't know that we're necessarily getting any better at, at compromising with, with each other. Yes, that's right. And uh, the compromise system was, I mean, it, was just, it was in place for so long, especially on the issue of slavery. Um, and I mentioned earlier with the Missouri Compromise, Compromise of 1850. Um, what's interesting, though, if I'm going to just comment real quick about compromise, which is the, the word promise in the word compromise. I, I think it's so interesting because it doesn't, it doesn't reflect, say, okay, compromise is the answer because there's definitely uh, clearly compromise doesn't work when it comes to the issue of slavery, but it's, what's right, interesting yeah. is that, that, it, that, it, that, that, that <laughs> let's point that out real quick. So we sure. talk about compromise and, and po- compromise being important, but we also talked about growing and learning from our mistakes, which obviously that's a huge mistake that there should have been no compromise with. So I'm not saying that was the answer. There. Sure. Sure. Right. Absolutely. That, yeah, exactly. Uh, because, when it comes to values, you can't compromise values. You know, you can compromise on legislation, compromise on the states and everything. But in the end, as we kind of solved the Civil War and with hindsight, uh, we realized that at that time we were not compromising land or politics. We were, comp- we were trying to compromise values. And it goes to show that uh, the values that we try to go for um, should be the most uh, pinnacle values that we can strive for in this day and age. Absolutely. So, so tell us about uh, the the final person and and I guess their um, anger over the Dred Scott decision, and rightly so. Absolutely. Well, our final guy today is one of my favorite guys of all time, um, hands down. This is Senator Charles Sumner of Massachusetts. Charles Sumner was a staunch abolitionist, but he was not just like an abolitionist. He was, he wasn't just like, okay, you know, I, I don't like slavery. He was like, no, I don't like slave. I hate it. And I want to go, I want to run this thing, abolish this thing as far as I can. (laughs) He was an absolute go-getter. He was a very, very good orator. So he was able to make speeches that were not only able to rile up the North, but he also made a lot of the Southerners really, really mad on May 20th. 
1856, he made probably one of the, 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 probably the speech to repudiate the Kansas Nebraska Act, which we just talked about earlier. He absolutely hated it. It was just like, this is ridiculous. This is the dumb, probably the dumbest idea he's ever heard, <laughs> or at least the, the top 10, probably. He thought it was just a horrible, horrible thing. And his speech was called The Crime Against Kansas. I mean, first of all, that's, I think it's a very catchy title. Uh, maybe not so catchy if you were in the South, but for, for the North, definitely was a very catchy title. And he made a very impassioned speech on the Senate floor repudiating the Kansas-Nebraska Act. But he didn't go just against this particular piece of legislation. He also went after some people. One of those guys was a senator from South Carolina named Andrew Butler. Now, Butler was clearly obviously pro-slavery guy. And some are basically called him names, and he mocked his speaking ability. He mocked his personal character. And one uh, one of Andrew Butler's cousins, I believe it was his first cousin, uh, wasn't very pleased about that. Clearly, and he was, and he was not only not pleased, he was very, very angry at Charles Sumner. And so he consults with a couple of his buddies, and. On May 22nd, 1856, just two days after the speech, Sumner's writing at his desk in the uh, old Senate chamber, and this guy named Preston Brooks comes along. Preston Brooks being the first cousin of Andrew Butler. Brooks is a representative from South Carolina, obviously very pro-slavery. He walks up to Sumner, and he kind of pretends to ask him about his speech. It's like, oh, you know, I want to know more about it. And just as Sumner is about to respond or try to, tries to show him his speech or try to explain something brooks takes out a cane and he strikes sumner in the head and he starts beating him repeatedly on the senate floor and sumner just immediately gets just blinded because it's such a first blow you know right in the face he falls to the floor and he gets trapped under that desk because of the way the desk was positioned and brooks just keeps beating him beating him beating him beating him on the senate floor and this was all happening it was just crazy it's just crazy how you know, politics can just descend it like that. And you would think, okay, well, what did everyone else do? Well, Brooks had some backup, unfortunately. He had a guy named Lawrence Kite, who was a guy from South Carolina, and a guy named Henry Edmondson from Virginia. And these two guys, I believe it was Edmondson, he literally weighed a pistol. He brandished a pistol saying, no one is going to intervene in this beating. And it, it just continues on and on for about probably the longest minute in the Senate's history, because Sumner's just getting beaten so hard. He's bleeding profusely. Bros just keeps beating him. And finally, that cane shatters into pieces. And he finally stops. But Sumner is still on the ground. He's bleeding profusely, as I mentioned earlier. And they had to get people in. He was taken to the cloakroom to get stitched up. And they took him to, I believe it was his home in Washington or something. And he was he was just badly badly hurt he actually if he i believe if that stick was made with a different material because it was a wooden stick right with like kind of like a golden top on top of it if it was of a different material that didn't break i, I don't think someone would have been around anymore that's how bad it was it was such a big blow not just against summer but against the institution of the senate and of the way that we do things here in america it was just such a such a brutal incident that basically shook the political scene, shook the country. Northerners obviously infuriated at this, and they wanted to do everything they could to punish Brooks. In the South, very, very different story. They obviously supported Brooks. They even sent canes to his office. They uh, and some of the broken pieces were on the Senate floor, and some of those uh, some of those Southern uh, Southern uh, politicians. 
um, actually made little necklaces and they wore them in solidarity of Preston Brooks. Uh, it, it's just madness. It's crazy how, and you know, newspapers were all over the place uh, portraying this and depending on their political differences. And this was really where I believe a lot of people realized this is not going to work out. All the compromises, all the debates, not happening because of this one incident and because of the representation that it showed. And Sumner will not actually return to the Senate for a few years. He actually had to be out. He was hospitalized, uh, viewed as a martyr, obviously, in the North. Well, it's really amazing about Summer is that not only did he stand up, he probably knew that he was going to, I mean, something bad was going to happen to him and his cause. Because when you make an impassioned speech about that in that day and age, when members could bring weapons into the Senate chamber and you know, there's crazy stuff that was happening in Kansas already, he still did that. He still espoused the values that he believed were, were to be true. And he believed that this country was not living up to those values and that this country could do better. Uh, but he didn't stop there. He st- he was advocating not just for slavery to end in America, but he wanted slaves to be able to vote, uh, to blacks to be able to vote when they came out of slavery and to make that transition into normal life, uh, be able to be treated equally. He even fought for uh, people of Chinese descent because at that time there was a lot of anti-Chinese sentiment. And he believed that that was a complete violation of the Declaration of Independence and its values. He went on so far, and he was, and like I said earlier, he was a man so, so different of his time. He was just born in the wrong era. He should have been born like many, many decades later because he would have fit a lot better there. But he still fought, even though he was recovering from those injuries. And Sumner really represents um, the guy who not only was very courageous, but he also he wasn't afraid of pointing to the Declaration of Independence to say, these are the the values that we espouse. Let's do better to work towards them. This story that I just told uh, you all about uh, in the Senate chamber, uh, I used to intern for two different uh, members in the House, one Republican, one Democrat, because I really believe that it's important to work for people on both sides of the aisle, even if you lean one way or another. And when we had tours of the Capitol, I remember showing those visitors that old Senate chamber, which is still right next to the rotunda today and sharing that story. Just imagine people, you can get, you get to stand in that same chamber where Senator Sumner was beaten and what, where, and where the American civil war, I think really got started. Yeah. Well, I mean, as as someone who worked, you know, within government and you said, did you say Congress or, or yes, the, the house of representatives. Yes. I gotcha. Well, I mean, there's a there's a pretty good, uh, I guess, correlation. Recently, you were talking about, you know, the the Senate floor being being tarnished. I, I don't think it's it's very controversial to say that it's it was it was maybe even more so tarnished very very recently. And uh, you said that, um, you know, the the beating of of uh, Sumner kind of made people realize, okay, this is not working. Something's got to change. So, you know, what, what do you say to, to that same, you know, kind of thought and why that didn't happen when, you know, the, the whole capital was, was breached? I mean, that's, that may be a, a little bit more, uh, a more of a, an issue and a kind of a, a tarnishment of the Senate and the House um, to, to have the, the whole thing, uh, the whole thing, uh, the insurrection and the, the breach of uh, the Capitol. Absolutely. Well, I'll start off with, Kind of how I also relate to 
um, the events of January 6th, I was actually locked down during January 6th. I was interning for a member at that time, and I got to see some of the worst things that I, I never would have imagined would happen. Not to mention something that I, I something I would never want to ever see in in the history of the United States and the world. You know what I saw when I saw those clashes. You know the video of clashes in the rotunda and the crypt and, and those places where, like I said, I used to get tours there. You know people used to go there to appreciate the building and appreciate the symbol of American representative democracy. To see that there was this desecration of democracy. And when we were doing the constitutional procedures of counting electoral votes, that was a big impact for me. And, and that's why recently I've been speaking a lot about uh, January 6th and about my views on, on how we should move on. And to, to answer your question, I believe that you know, while January 6th obviously happened in one day, but the underlying causes and the foundations of January 6th have been going on for years. We have we have neglected to remember what makes America unique and what makes America a unique place to have civil debates and conversations. We've just like just like in the 18 now look I don't think they're these are two very different eras. So I'm obviously not comparing you know this day and age to the Civil War, but you know in those in those days they they need a war to to basically save an institution, save a nation. You know, think about the the debates that we're having now, and how, as you pointed out, we can't even get a we can't even put together a bipartisan equal num equal number of Democrat Republican commission to look at January sixth. If that was something uh, the appetite of the, of the nation, yeah, and I, I guess the the issue there, and regardless of which side of 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 the issue that you fall, I, I just worry. That uh, you know, people now are are way more interested in in staying in their individual silos rather than mm. thinking about what's what's best, you know, for the country essentially. And then also, you know, you 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 kind of uh, alluded to it, but I'm also worried that we just put too much faith and too much stock in our institutions that really are fragile. I don't think that we can just think you know, based definitely based off of January 6th and based off of a lot of other things that have happened, you know, in, in the past that we can just rely on them always to, to withstand all of the, you know, all of the metaphorical beatings that they, that it's taken. So I, I just worry about really just holding, holding too tight to those institutions and not wanting to, to change them or not wanting to realize that there may be, maybe issues there and, and, uh, that they're not always going to withstand every every blow that they take. Well, you're absolutely right, Jackson. I, I want to address that real quick because I, I believe you're right. I do think that we're very much on the same wavelength, especially when you think of the role of political parties in these institutions, because that's really a big problem, a big source of these problems. For example, you know, when you think of party leadership, you know, I, I don't need to. I don't think this applies to just one party. I think it applies to both uh, in different degrees. But when you have issues where the political party allegiance and the committee assignments and the, the role of the whip or something, when you think of these things that are clouding the importance of protecting is the institution, Congress as an institution, not the Republican Party, not the Democratic Party, but Congress as an institution in terms of not just how you do things, but how future representatives who aren't elected yet 
uh, how they're going to fit in, that is when things can get very, very problematic when those interests start clouding the congressional the Congress as an institution. And, and I, so that's why I do agree with you that, you know, when we see a lot of this focus on, you know, the, this personal way of going on to social media, creating your own brand without, without realizing that f- followers on Twitter or followers on Facebook, whatever. Okay. If, they, if you want to go down that route, fine, but that's not legislation, right? That does, that's not legislation that moves the country forward. You know, that's you kind of making some statements and trying to attract attention to yourself. I, I like that. And I think that's kind of a, a good place to, to end that conversation. Obviously, we've been talking about how to, to make the, the country a, a better place for more than more than 200 years, 300 years, and we could, we could be talking about it for a lot longer than, you know, the, the hour today, but uh, just the wanting to, to instill the, the values that you hold. And if you don't see someone who are hold those same values to be active and, and uh, a part of our, our system yourself, I think that's kind of a, a good place to, to leave it there. So I want to give you the opportunity um, to plug your podcast again, because, you know, people are listening to this and think what you're, you're stopping it now well, this is, you know, this is a, this is exactly what I'm interested in. I think they're going to hear a lot more of it, um, on your podcast. So tell people how they can, they can get to it again. Absolutely. Well, my podcast is called Friends and Fellow Citizens. You can find it on your favorite podcast app, or you can go to my website as well. I'll spell it out for you, shermantyloski.com. So S-H-E-R-M-A-N-T-Y-L-A-W-S-K-Y.com. You can check out more information about my podcast there and some other things that I'm working on, including my other appearances on other shows too. And I just want to thank Jackson so much for having me on today. I think this was a really, really great episode. And I cannot thank him enough for having me on because this was really, really engaging topic. And I hope that people have learned something from it. So thank you so much. Absolutely. Thank you. I like I like I said in the very beginning, it's it's very rare that I kind of just get to kick back and listen to to someone else. So it and it's been a really enlightening conversation. Um, it's an area that I am, I'm definitely interested in too. It's a, it's a touchy area to really talk a lot about given that I want to, to be as, as, you know, keep my opinions out as much as possible. So, so yeah, I mean, it, it I think it was a really, uh, a productive, uh, conversation. I think that we all can, can learn a lot from it. So, so thank you too. So that was my interview with Sherman Talowski. Now I'm so used to saying that was my interview I don't know if I'm going to even call that an interview. I guess it was, but that was Sherman teaching us some some really valuable lessons. I I got a, a several questions in there, that, you know, just from his presentation that I, I had kind of as, as the student. But uh, I I uh, I think that he kind of carried this uh, this week. I I really appreciate him being here. I I learned so much about some some really fascinating interesting people and as an american um grateful for for a lot of their contributions for for sure um hope you enjoyed this as well whether you are an american that uh, learned a little bit about some people that you maybe had no idea about maybe you're a huge history buff and this is all just a, a recap for you 
um, or maybe you know on the other side, like I was talking about in the intro, that you're you're not from the United States and you just learned a little bit about some interesting people that uh, shaped America. So glad he joined us. Glad he taught us uh, what he did, which was quite a lot. Um, glad you joined us. Hope uh, hope you enjoyed this different kind of episode this week that uh, covered. Uh, quite uh, quite some some big topics we, we tackled some some real huge uh, huge issues and, and problems that I think America is still still tackling and still struggling with frankly um, but uh, next week back to kind of the the normal conversations with with people and, and learning about them um, as a, a person but I, I sometimes will throw in some of these some of these different uh, conversations and hope you enjoyed this one Glad Sherman was here. Please do check him out. Check out his podcast. Check out his um, website. He, he told you all those connection points. Of course, check us out. Instagram, not enough podcast, jacksonhuff.com. Uh, not enough with Jackson Huff on Facebook. We're everywhere. Hope you'll follow. Hope you'll subscribe. Hope you'll uh, do all of that. If this is your first time listening, maybe you came over from Sherman's podcast. Appreciate you being here. Hope you'll check out some of those uh, previous conversations we've had over a year in now, enjoying every week. And uh, I'll I'll, uh, shut it down now and I'll say, hey, take it away, Chris. This has been Not in a Huff with Jackson Huff. Thank you for listening. Be sure to join us next time where we will interview another amazing guest who is sure to make you laugh or make you think, or hey, maybe even both. But until then, keep being awesome.